As we begin the message, I would like to start with a quote. Here it is. The success of the effort now being planned by Christ and the spiritual hierarchy is dependent upon the ability of mankind to use what light it already has in order to establish right relations in their families, their community, and their nation, and in the world. Doesn't that sound good? The success of the effort now being planned by Christ and the spiritual hierarchy is dependent upon the ability of mankind to use what light it already has in order to establish right relations in their families, their community, and their nation, and in the world. The reason that sounds so good to us as Christians is because it emphasizes the importance of love and unity and oneness. Do you know who the quote is from? It is from New Age occultist Alice Bailey. It is simply one illustration of why we need to be extremely discerning as God's people. But tragically and sadly, the word discernment is a dirty word in many Christian circles today. If you seek to be discerning, then you are often labeled unloving or divisive or against unity. Many Christians today define love as anything goes or as an absence of biblical convictions, biblical standards, biblical parameters. For example, there was an advertisement in the Christian century that read, quote, Berkeley Church seeks minister for local non-denominational congregation. Position open to Christians and non-Christians, end quote. I'm serious. Position open to Christians and non-Christians. That was the advertisement. Is that what we've come to, beloved? That a pastoral staff position in a church is open to Christians and non-Christians alike? Is that what it means to be loving? I would submit to you that the answer is no. Biblical love is is discerning. And that is the theme of the little book of 2 John, which we want to consider in this message. But before we turn to it, by way of introduction, I want us to begin with a prayer found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. So first of all, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. After Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, we have Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians. And notice what Paul prayed for the believers in ancient Philippi. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And this I pray, here's what I pray for you, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. One of the things this prayer shows us is that love and knowledge are not opposites, as some people think. They really go hand in hand. Some people think that it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you love, just as long as you are a loving person. That perspective is absolutely wrong. In Romans 10, 2, Paul said, 
the Jews had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were, they were very zealous for God, but wrong information, no knowledge. <coughs> There's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in misguided love or misdirected love or ignorant love. You know this on a human level. If you love someone, you want to learn more about that person. You want to get to know him or her. That's how healthy relationships develop. So Paul qualifies the kind of love he is referring to here in verse 9, the kind of love he was praying for by saying, I'm praying that your love would abound in knowledge. Not a sloppy kind of love, but a love in knowledge. This particular Greek word is used 20 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to knowledge of the things of God or theological knowledge. That's what feeds our love. Spiritual knowledge feeds true love. The more you know about God, then the more you should love Him and His people. The more we comprehend the love of God toward us, as unworthy as we are, the more we ought to love Him, and the more we can love others around us who are just as imperfect as we are. Spiritual knowledge feeds true Christian love. There's no virtue in ignorance of what God says. To become a Christian, you must come to know the truth, according to 1 Timothy 2.4. To grow as a Christian, you must continue to learn the truth, according to Colossians 1.10. Turn over there to Colossians, the uh, next letter, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. <coughs> Paul, again, mentioning a prayer of his for the Colossians. This was his prayer. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. Notice this. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed for the believers in Colossae to increase in the knowledge of God. Why? Well, one reason is because ignorance is often a root cause of stunted spiritual growth. Lack of application can be another root cause, but you can't apply what you don't know. You can't act on biblical principles you are ignorant of. So spiritual knowledge feeds true Christian love for God and for others. That's one of the reasons why I'm so committed to preaching and teaching the Word of God Sunday after Sunday. We can't just get together and sing and shout, let's love God more, let's love God more, let's love God more. Or it wouldn't do any good for me to get up every Sunday and just browbeat the congregation by saying, you ought to love God more, you ought to love others more. That's emotion without content, and it dries up in time. Spiritual knowledge feeds true love. Our love is to be fed by and regulated by the Word of God. That is why it is so ridiculous to hear someone involved in an immoral relationship, and I've heard this so many times through the years, people involved in an immoral relationship say, well, it must be right because God gave us this love for each other. God doesn't give that kind of love. True love is controlled by the Word of God and fed by spiritual knowledge. 
So in Philippians 1, Paul prays their love would abound still more and more in knowledge. But as I said a moment ago, knowledge without application doesn't do any good either. So notice what Paul adds next back in Philippians 1. Go back just one letter. Back to verse 9 of Philippians 1. He says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Now notice what he adds. And all discernment. This is a word that emphasizes insight in order to make a proper decision. This word carries the idea of action or application of knowledge. Paul links knowing the truth with applying the truth to life. As I said a moment ago, you can't apply biblical principles you don't know, but if you don't apply biblical principles you do know, then you're really no better off. So when it comes to our exposure to the Word of God, God wants us to ask two questions. It's this basic. What does the Bible teach? And then how does God want this to affect my life? It's that simple. What does this particular passage teach and how does this, or how should this affect my life? Failure to do either one of those things thwarts the growth process and really cuts off the flow of genuine love. True knowledge is a knowledge that has been passed through the mind, through the heart, and into lifestyle. The Christians in the book of Hebrews failed to grasp that truth or that reality. Turn over to the right near the end of your New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Just prior to the book of James is the book of Hebrews. Notice the problem that the author describes here for these Hebrew believers. In verse 11 he says, referring to Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, and we might expect him to say because Because this is so deep. It's hard to explain because it's so deep, but that's not what he says. He says, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. So what was the problem here? Why had these believers, these Jewish believers, gone backwards? Verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, those who by reason of practice, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is such a key passage, beloved. It tells us that discernment, doesn't come merely by taking in spiritual knowledge. It's not merely a matter of information. You have to use it. You have to apply it. You have to act on it. You have to practice it. Both elements together form the perfect combination for a growing love. Knowledge and discernment. Now back to Philippians 1 to see more what Paul has to say there. A common expression in our day is, love is blind. Beloved Christian, love is not blind. It is an intelligent love, not an indiscriminate love. 
One of the sure marks of spiritual maturity is discerning love. William Hendrickson writes this, quote, A person, please, please listen closely to this quote. This, he is so right on. A person who possesses love but lacks discernment may reveal a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honorable, yet he may be doing more harm than good, end quote. That is so right. It is heartbreaking when I see how many well-meaning people, Christian people, people who love the Lord and love other people, trying to show their love for the Lord and show their love for others by giving money to people or organizations who actually work against the true work of God. Obviously, these believers would not do that intentionally. But it's the lack of discernment that leads them or causes them to do such a thing. Paul doesn't want that kind of thing to happen in the lives of the Philippians when he wrote this. So he prays for an increasing love, but he doesn't stop there, coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. These things enable us to love God more and to love others more. That's why Paul includes them in his prayer He wanted the Philippians to love more. And if thorough knowledge and discernment enable us to love more, certainly more properly, then it makes sense that Paul would include these things as a part of his prayer. And I want you to notice that it was the first component of his prayer. He goes on in verse 10 to pray for other things, verse 11 to pray for other things, but he prays it first of all in verse 9 because this is the foundation for spiritual development. Paul will go on in this prayer to delineate some of the other elements of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and spiritual development, but please notice that this is the foundation. It's all built on and flows from an increasing love for God coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. And the very fact that God recorded this prayer in inspired scripture shows us that he still wants the same things for those of us who belong to him. You could say it this way, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is still praying these things for us. These things here in verse 9. Since that's the case, we ought to pray these things for our own lives. We ought to pray these things for one another. And we need to do our part to see to it that these things are a reality in our lives. You see, we do have a part to play in this. Just because this is a prayer doesn't mean that God is going to do it all and we don't have any part to play. Remember, elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to love. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to grow in knowledge. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to be discerning And to apply the truth we learn so we have a part. But it's God who provides the enablement. It was the Apostle Paul who prayed this prayer here in Philippians chapter 1. But it very well could have been the Apostle John. Because this was a major theme in his life. He continually preached love as we saw in the many weeks we spent in the letter called First John. But he also preached truth and discernment as we also saw many times in our trek through First John. 
So with that as background, let's turn to the tiny little letter known as Second John. Over near the end of the New Testament, having concluded First John, we're going to look today at Second John. And you'll be happy to know it's not a multi-week series because it's a really short letter. So one message, we cover the whole thing. Second John has only one chapter. <clears throat> In John's first letter, he emphasized the importance of love that is coupled with discernment. In this second epistle, also written around A.D. 85 to 90, he continues with his same theme, but really from a different angle, as we'll see this morning. He basically is saying here in this letter, biblical love is not naive. Or to say it another way, biblical love is not sentimental. To, to put it in the positive, biblical love is discerning. Biblical love is coupled with truth. Now, notice what he says in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth... And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. There are two views about this phrase, the elect lady. Some believe that it refers to a literal lady and her children, someone with whom John had familiarity, association, etc. Others see this as a more, a more metaphorical, as a reference to a church and its members. No one can be certain which view is correct, but either way, it really doesn't change the interpretation or the meaning of the letter. John wrote this brief letter to a Christian lady and her children, or to a Christian church and its members. But notice how he describes them. He refers to them as those whom I love in truth, and also all those who have known the truth. It's obvious what his emphasis is in this opening verse. He mentions it twice so we don't miss it. His burden was for God's truth. His concern was for God's truth. That, that's what was on his heart as he wrote this letter. That's what was in his mind. That's what the Holy Spirit was directing him to focus on and to address. God's truth. In case we missed it in verse 1, notice in verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Beloved, God's truth is a precious thing. It's not a take it or leave it kind of issue. It's not something that we can just discard if it's unpopular in our culture or in our religious circles or wherever it may be. God's truth is a precious thing. It's not take it or leave it. We don't, have the, we don't have the option or the choice of doing with it what we prefer. But sadly, that's the way some Christians seem to approach God's truth. They think it can be sacrificed for anything and everything. They, they think it can be set aside for anything and everything. And often... They set it aside in the name of, now watch this, in the name of love. Or, closely related, in the name of unity. That kind of action would have been unthinkable to the Apostle John. Having concluded our several-week series through 1 John, I hope you know 
that kind of action in relation to God's truth would have been unthinkable to the Apostle John, who, by the way, was the Apostle of love. There's no way John would have done that or encouraged that or supported that. Yet it goes on in Christendom today under the umbrella of Christianity. One example that comes to my mind is the past signing of the document titled Evangelicals and Catholics Together, signed by men like Chuck Colson, Bill Bright, and J.I. Packer, godly men, men committed to Christ, but somehow in their minds justified signing such a document. One of the men who signed that document was a Catholic gentleman named Peter Kreeft, who was a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Writing in the New Covenant, he declared Mary as our channel of salvation and said this, quote, But there is a fourth way Mary links us to Christ, literally by her blood. Christ's literal blood which redeemed us was our blood because it was Mary's blood. He shed our own blood, our human race's blood, to redeem us through the visitation of Mary, end quote. Now, why in the world would a Christian set aside God's truth, God's precious truth about what really joins us to him? Why set that aside to join hands in unity with someone who teaches that kind of heresy? Kreef wrote the book entitled Ecumenical Jihad, which he dedicated to Colson and two others. In it, he wrote that Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and Protestants have the same God. It's all the same God. He calls on individuals to, quote, consecrate your life to the immaculate heart of Mary. She is the one who will win this war. She is the one, as the Bible says, who triumphs over Satan, end quote. As the Bible says? Where is that in the Bible? It's not in there. That's an attack on God's truth. A direct attack on God's truth. The Bible never says Mary is going to win any war. It says Jesus is going to win the war. Chuck Colson wasn't the only one to endorse that book. So did J.I. Packer. He even asked the question, What if he's right? That blows my mind. What if he's right? What kind of question is that when God's word has already told us what is right? Beloved, if God's word has spoken on an issue very clearly and without any question, we don't have to ask what what is the truth about this issue. God has already told us the truth about the issue. And God has clearly told us the truth about how we can be right Him, right with Him and how we can come to Him. There's only one way. The, the Bible couldn't be any clearer. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's the only right answer. We don't come to God through Mary. We come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Jesus excluded all others, including Mary. Beloved, there's absolutely no room to compromise this truth. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is foundational. You are messing with people's eternal destiny if you mess with this truth. As John says here in verse 2, the truth will be with us forever. God's truth is not open to negotiation. It can't be sacrificed. It can't be set aside in the name of love, in the name of unity, in the name of not causing offense. It cannot, it cannot be sacrificed. The issues that God's truth addresses, the issues are too important. They have eternal implications. Eternal destiny implications. In verse 3, John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's the biblical combination. Truth and love. And God's grace, mercy, and peace are granted to those who believe the truth and hold to the Father and the Son in truth. Not everyone experiences God's saving grace, God's saving mercy, and salvation peace because not everyone will embrace the truth. John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You see, there are a lot of people who don't want the light. They don't want the truth because the truth exposes them. They don't want the truth because the truth is uncomfortable. They don't want the truth because it challenges their preconceived ideas. They don't want the truth because it challenges their religious traditions. They don't want the truth. But those who do receive the truth also receive God's saving grace, God's saving mercy, and salvation peace, which is why John extends these things to his readers here in verse 3. They had embraced the truth. Notice this is the fourth time in three verses that John has mentioned the truth. Four times in three verses. And he does so again in the very next verse, verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Do you realize that God commands us to walk in the truth? That's the assumption behind this verse. John was, was rejoicing because these children were walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. These children were ordering their lives by the truth of the Word of God. Is that the way you order your life? What is it that drives your life? What sets your priorities in life? Is it the truth of God's Word? What is it that determines your beliefs, your perspectives, your views? Is it God's truth or is it your own thoughts? Is it God's truth or is it your religious traditions? It ought to be God's truth. That ought to trump everything in our lives. And when we embrace the truth and come to the truth, our lives also ought to be characterized by love. Now, in case you were daydreaming when I said that, or you, you know, tuned out for a minute, let me say it again. When we embrace the truth and come to the truth, our lives also ought to be characterized by love. Verse 5 says, 
And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. You know this commandment. It's in John 13, 34, and 35. It's in John 15, 12, John 15, 17, 1 John 3, 11, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 4, 11. It's all over the place in the pages of the New Testament. We should love one another. And the implication is that this isn't automatic. Many times it isn't easy. We have to work at it. We have to apply ourselves. We have to be forbearing. We have to be forgiving. That's what love is. But what it isn't, hear this, it isn't love without any biblical parameters. So John adds the next statement, verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. John defines love as obeying the commandments of the Lord. Therefore, whenever God commands or God's commandments tell us to do something that some people consider to be unloving, it's not unloving. True love is, is discerning. True love has biblical convictions. And John explains why in the very next verse the necessity is this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. In John's day, there were some religious leaders and teachers who taught that because God is holy and because human flesh is not holy, therefore Jesus didn't really become a man. He didn't become truly human. He didn't become fully human. He looked like a man. He appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. He only appeared to take the form of a man. That is heretical false doctrine. And John makes it clear that to take a strong stand against those teachers is not unloving. In fact, John exhorts his readers to be very careful. He says in verse 8, Look to yourselves. Take heed. Be careful. That we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. What was John's concern? It's obvious as you work your way through this letter. John was concerned that out of a desire to be loving, Christians would be hesitant to take a strong stand against those who embrace and teach heretical doctrine. Beloved, let me say it again. That is not unloving. Actually, it's very loving. Because as we saw in verse 6, love is walking according to the Lord's commandments. Love is walking according to the Lord's truth. This is a message we need to reiterate today. Because there are some Christians who are intimidated by others who accuse them of being unloving, who accuse them of being divisive because they take a stand against false doctrine and heresy. John would disagree with that. John, the apostle of love, would say, that is not unloving. That is not unloving. Verse 9, whoever transgresses or goes ahead or goes beyond and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, 
In other words, anyone who goes beyond what Jesus taught, who, who gives his own opinions, his own thoughts, his own theology, he doesn't stay within the parameter of what Jesus taught, what Jesus teaches in the Word. Whoever goes beyond and does not abide or stay in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. That verse is saying if a person's doctrine about the person and work of Christ is heretical, then it's safe to say that the person doesn't have God. It doesn't matter how religious the person sounds. It doesn't matter how convincing he or she sounds. It doesn't matter how well he or she can talk about God, talk about spirituality. If your doctrine about the person and work of Christ is heretical, then you don't have the true God. You do not have the true God in your life. You do not have the Son of God in your life. Therefore, verse 10, John says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, what doctrine? This doctrine that is true about Christ, this doctrine that abides in Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. But John, that sounds so unloving. John, you, you are the apostle of love. Why would you make such a statement? It sounds so unloving. It isn't. It's the right thing to do. But why? Why should we take this strong of a stand? Verse 11, For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, don't misunderstand what John is saying in these two verses. He is not saying that it is wrong to say hi to someone who is a Mormon missionary or a Jehovah's Witness missionary. And it's not wrong to talk with them about the truth. What he is referring to, this greeting was more than just a verbal greeting. In the context of the first century, the, the cultural context, it's obvious what John is referring to. And that is the con common practice of his day of hosting in your home traveling religious teachers and helping them on their way. John says, if you do that, you are then sharing in his evil deeds by helping him spread heretical doctrine. So don't do it. Don't do that. Don't let anyone put you on a guilt trip. Now remember, in the first century, especially in this culture, the, the idea of hospitality was huge. It would have been a huge pressure, especially on Christians. Hey, you say you're a Christian? Christians are supposed to be loving. Why don't you help these people? Why don't you host them? Why don't you bring them into your home, help them out, and then send them on their way? That would have been an immense pressure on Christians. So John is basically saying, listen, don't let anyone put you on a guilt trip by saying you are unloving for refusing to help someone in his work of spreading false doctrine and heresy. It doesn't matter how sincere the person is. If his doctrine of the person and work of Christ is heretical, then don't participate with him. Don't partner with him. Don't help him. Why would you help him spread doctrine that leads people to hell? And beloved, this still applies to us today. It is not wrong to refuse to participate with religious groups or Christian groups. And I, and I have in my notes this word Christian in quotes. Religious groups or Christian groups who do not hold to true biblical doctrine about the person 
and work of Christ. It is not wrong to refuse participation with such groups. Now, to the world, this seems bizarre. You're all, it's just all religion, and all religions lead to God anyway. Why would you not work together? Why would you not partner? But the Word of God says it is right to refuse to participate. So don't let well-meaning Christian people put you on a guilt trip for taking that kind of stand. That's why John wrote this letter. More importantly, it is why the Holy Spirit of God guided and directed John to write this letter. This is important to the Holy Spirit. In fact, notice how John closes. He says, Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Some people think this isn't a very important issue to address. In fact, it's possible that some people here this morning think, you know, I'm not sure it's necessary to do a whole sermon on 2 John, on the importance of biblical love being discerning. I don't know that it's that important. The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, would disagree with you. And even more important, the Holy Spirit would disagree. Notice what verse 12 says. This is really a very interesting verse. In verse 12, John says that this is so important that even though he didn't have room to write about many things, he made sure to write about this issue. That's how important it is. John had limited time, evidently, limited paper, limited ink, so he had to narrow down what is the most important thing I can write about, and I'll cover the rest with them when I'm with them face to face. What was the most important thing? This is it. That's how important it is. John could have written about a lot of other things in the limited space he had, but he chose to write about the importance of not compromising God's truth. He says here in verse 12, just to paraphrase, some of the other things I would like to talk to you about can wait. I'll talk to you about them when I come to see you face to face. But this one is so important that I had to write this letter. I just had to write this letter. I was compelled to write this letter. The Holy Spirit of God directed me to write this letter. That's how important this issue is. Do you see it as this important? Now, we need to be careful. Please hear me when I say this. We don't want to become unloving. And we don't want to become Christian headhunters. We don't want to become abrasive unnecessarily. We don't want to become hypercritical. I know some Christians and Christian ministries that are like that. We don't want to be like that. In fact, my fear, whenever we come in our ongoing study of Scripture, my fear when we come to a passage like, like this is often, it is often that the people who need to hear this won't hear it, and the ones who don't need to hear this will be the ones who hear it. You know what I mean by that? In other words, my my concern is that the people who are maybe reserved and intimidated and and feel like it's unloving to stand for the truth, they are the ones who need to hear this, and maybe they won't, won't, but those who are already so so, uh, aggressive will hear it, and it will only increase their uh, caustic 
personality. We don't want that to happen. We don't want to be like that. But we do want to stand for God's precious truth. Even if we are accused of being unloving, even if we are accused of being divisive, God's truth is too precious to toss aside. I hope you see it that way. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And as we close, I want to remind you of two passages I mentioned in the message. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The only way you can be right with God is through Christ Jesus. You can't get to God, you can't be right with God through your works, through your religion, through your deeds. It's only through Christ Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you can come to God and be right with God and be in the family of God is through Jesus Christ. That's God's truth. That is the truth. And so if you're here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're not right with God. No matter how hard you're working at it, how hard you've tried, you're not right with God. You can only be right with God to come through His Son, Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, right where you are seated, right there, in in the quietness of your own heart. Ask Jesus Christ into your life. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Tell him you want to be right with him, that you want to surrender your life to him. Tell him you want to come through him to the Father to receive his glorious salvation. That's the only way you'll ever be right with God. And Father, as we close this morning, we want to do so with this reminder that Your truth is precious. It is precious because it tells us the way to be right with you. It tells us how to have eternal life. It tells us how to have our sins forgiven. It tells us how to enjoy the salvation Jesus purchased. And so your truth is not something that we can trifle with. It's not something we can treat lightly, that we can toss aside in the name of love or unity or cooperation. Yes, Father, we want to be loving because you exhort us over and over to be loving. We want to be people who are characterized by love, but not a kind of love that is defined as discarding truth. So grant by the enablement of your spirit that we would be men and women who love and who love truth. And in closing, Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who cannot call you Father, who has never surrendered to your Son, Jesus Christ, May your Holy Spirit bring conviction, understanding, so that this would be the day he or she would surrender to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.